Welcome to Eleven Zers with Danielle Perry, a podcast that celebrates the age-old tradition of a mid-morning break, the opportunity to put the smartphones down and indulge in an actual conversation. And in a play on the title and timing of a morning coffee, for the podcast, I also ask each of my guests the same 11 questions, which often reveal wildly different answers. Now, past guests from the first series include Steve Coogan, Jeff Goldblum, Sophie Dahl, Carl Pilkington and more. But today's guest is a fellow broadcaster who has a wealth of experience and panache for broadcast, politics and interviews. He has been at the BBC for 33 years and in that time has covered everything from reporting in Africa during political instability to fronting the long-running quiz show Eggheads and a daily current affairs show on Channel 5. He's also a published author. This year, his latest called The Diver and the Lover, based on Salvador Dali's Christ of St. John of the Cross. Ahead of this recording... He told me that he fell in love with radio aged 11, listening to Kenny Everett, and is still in love with it now on Radio 2 at lunchtimes. If all that didn't give it away, please welcome Jeremy Vine to Elevenses, a special for the Radio Academy. Jeremy, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm just, I, I love this idea of the same 11 questions. This is now officially terrifying. But yes, I did fall in love with, with the radio through Kenny Everett, bless him. And the strange thing is that had he not died too young, he would definitely be in these studios and I'd see him in the lift and he'd be on radio too. And that thought always makes me a little bit sad. It's amazing though, isn't it? To still be sort of broadcasting from, from the same building, the same ethos and the same company of something that really stole your heart. So young, isn't it? You know, when I when I started on Radio 2, the very first person I met was Terry Wogan. I didn't say this to Terry, but I, I he started his breakfast show here when I was six years old. So it was amazing to walk in here age 34 and he's, he's still, actually, no, 40, no, 10 years later, and he's still going on the breakfast show as he was at the time. So, yeah, there's something about, you know, the lift doors open and it's Gary Newman who steps out or I go in and I, and I see Tony Blackburn or Bob Harris or whatever. So I, I'm a radio wonk. So for me, this is heaven. <laughs> yeah, totally. Now, of course, this is called Elevenses. So, I mean, you have boundless energy. I don't know how you do like those two big high profile shows every single day. Are you a coffee? you're a tea man. I've got a difficult relationship with coffee. I love it too much. And I find that if I start to stack five, six, seven coffees a day, uh, that's that then begins to be a withdrawal issue. And I, I've discovered recently now in, in sort of, is it midlife or is it actually later life? I don't know. In the, my autumnal years that, that I have migraine. I didn't realise. I just thought I, hangovers were very, very bad. But I discovered that coffee is tied up with that. So basically, long answer short, one cup or two max coffee, but I love them so much. I almost look forward to it. And and the first one I have uh, just before I go on the air, <laughs> maybe that explains why. <laughs> You're like, come on, let's go. Um, so what we're going to do uh, throughout the 11 questions, which I, I've asked all the guests for series one, um, we're going to start off, it's, if it's all right with you, by stripping everything right back to your childhood. Um, and I've read you saying before that it was um, a sort of childhood where you your imagination kind of let you explore things. It wasn't a sort of really wildly exciting childhood. I've read that, but correct me if I'm wrong. What is your first memory, Jeremy Vine? Oh, my first memory, I think, was probably stroking the neighbour's cat. I know I was wearing a nappy because my mum took a photo and the cat was black and white, like the whole of the world. I mean, I tell my kids that when I was growing up, it's not just the photos were black and white, everything was black and white and, and colour photography is, happened because the world changed colour. So this cat was black and white, I was black and white, everything was, and we had this little garden 
And to me, it's the ultimate moment of texture where I'm wearing a cardigan knitted by my mum. So there's that texture. And I'm in this these very odd little mini infant trousers with my nappy on and I reach out and I stroke the cat and that's texture as well. And it's the opposite of the digital world. It's the most undigital moment. So that really registered. I can actually, if I close my eyes, I can I can exactly remember where I was because I put my knee as a tiny, tiny little boy on, on the stone surround on the flower bed and and then I moved forwards and the other knee went into the soil and I reached out and touched the cat and it didn't move and it liked it. Gosh, that's so clear and that must be more than 50 years ago. Well, I was going to say, like, how, old, how old do you think you were for that photograph? Well, I, I reckon I was two max, actually. And, and because... And, and I just remember it vividly. I mean, as it happens, there is a photo somewhere of me doing that as a two-year-old. So I, I now know also what it looked like. But I think I must have done it many, many times. So you had a brother and a sister that you grew up with, didn't you? Both involved in the media and the arts. Yeah. The, my, I had uh, my, obviously my brother, Tim, who's a couple of years younger than me. My sister, Sonia, is is uh, five years younger than me. She became a painter and actress. She's now, you know, bringing up two, two kids and... Very happily so. My brother is a comedian. He uh, his jokes are very funny. I mean, I don't know, I don't know how that happened. I don't know why we're all showing off. You know, it must be some. My theory about it is is that basically we we would take it to church a lot when we were young, and the church, although it was supposed to tell us that God was very important, it ended up telling us that the vicar was very important, and the vicar was important because he got up onto this stage and and everyone listened. And I think it it probably created completely the wrong. Impression impression, which is that your job is to find a stage, stand on it, and everyone will listen. So I, in as much as I can analyse why do these three kids go into show-off professions, that's as close as I can get. The other possibility is that it's a gene, and it could be my late father's. I mean, he he was a, a lecturer. It could be my mum's, because she would always, when we were on holiday, there would always be a poetry competition, and she'd always write the winning poem. So I think there must be some show-off gene. And that would be sad if it was my mum, because she's of the generation where you weren't definitely, as a woman, you weren't allowed to show off, or even really have a job, actually. I think she gave up her job when she got engaged. You say you're scared uh, potentially of us losing that analogue, that wonderful kind of memory of our own uh, minds. But if I ask you the question directly, what are you scared of? Is, is there anything else more than that? Once you become a parent, and my kids are 16 and 13, everything you're frightened of for yourself transfers, doubles, triples, depending on how many kids you've got. And it's like squared exponential. So you've now got, you thought it was scary to be one human being. Now you're scared on behalf of two or three or four. So I've got two daughters, they're 16 and 13. I just say, please, I know the biggest danger to them is the car. Look left and right every time you cross the road. So it's really, really boring advice. I mean, all parents are worried about paedophiles and so on. Um, to be honest, that statistically speaking, the car is far more dangerous. So that turns you into a bit of a warrior, you know, and I didn't, I don't want, and the thing is, I don't want to communicate danger to them. I want to say, live long and prosper. But then you've got to do the, but just watch out for that red mini that's turned and I can tell the driver's angry. So boringly, I am actually just, I'm scared for them. For me, I suppose that... I don't know. I sort of feel that you, the big scary thing is that when you get to the end of your life, you think you didn't really do anything of any consequence what all, whatsoever, that it was, there was no point, you know. I, I sort of worry that we're, if we're, there's someone suddenly turns the show off, there's nothing, you know. And broadcasters, 
really, really worry about this because, you know, my predecessor, Jimmy Young, Sir Jimmy Young, his identity was the show. He was still broadcasting when he was 83. And I said to my editor once, how, how is that possible? He said, well, he's, he's actually really existing just for two hours a day. The other 22 hours, you know, I don't know what, quite what Jimmy was doing, but, I, but it was probably recovery. And I'm thinking, gosh, that is A, commendable and amazing, but B, a bit scary as well. And if you're only if if you the only thing you've got is the show, you've got a problem. I completely can understand where you're coming from because I've been broadcasting for twenty years myself. But if you really it's fascinating to me, if you really stopped tomorrow, would you feel like you hadn't achieved enough? What more is do you? You've always got a fire in your belly. You can tell that from looking at everything you've done so far. But what else do you need to prove to yourself that you have made an oh, impact? Oh, but, but listen, the problem is this. It's that maybe none of it really matters, I think. That's the worry that, you know, I, I used to work with Jeremy Paxman on Newsnight and someone said, oh, Paxman was really upset that he'd never been involved in a war. You know, so he's always saying, we haven't been, our generation hasn't been tested. And I was talking to Anna Ford, just to keep name dropping here. Anna Ford, who I don't really know at all, but she, but she was interviewing her and I, I was looking around the studio before we started. I said... God, this isn't bad, is it? I mean, we're lucky. And she just said, we are the luckiest people in the history of the world. I thought, gosh, let's not forget that, you know, how lucky we've been. And and not to register it or to get to the end of it and think, oh, it's just a normal life, I think would be a bit tragic. I mean, I've just finished reading a book. My mind is on this partly because I've just finished reading a book, an incredible book um, called The Last Enemy by Richard Hillary. And he was the guy who um, flew in the Battle of Britain. And it, it really, it, I think it's the best book I've ever read. He's 23 years old. He can write. He starts writing about it. He, he writes the instruction of how to win a dogfight and all that. And then at the end of the book, he, he's dead because he, he had one plane crash. He persuaded them to let him fly again. Um, he, uh, he shouldn't have even been driving, let alone flying. He goes up in the air again, dies. That's it at 23. And you think, hmm, that, now that's a life. That is a life. So I'm slightly challenged by that thought that we, um, we're living in, in times that maybe don't get the best out of us. Yeah, absolutely. And and you had some you must have had some fascinating moments so in your time in Africa where you spent a lot of time and you know sort of I, I myself I've been to Johannesburg it's a fascinating city but you know sort of working out there as well and covering things must have been such an eye opener. Oh, for me completely and it actually did completely change my life and it, and it goes a bit to the last question of of just thinking okay right now I understand what it's all about you know because previously I'd been at Westminster I mean the check to go from Westminster to Africa was unbelievable so Westminster was press release comes off and someone slags somebody else off and we go we run through the studio and we say there's a big development you know so then the NHS and it's bought a thousand new beds and we say it's a coded attack on the chancellor by the health secretary then you go to africa and you i think i went to 18 african countries in three years the rule was if you ever see a tourist you're in the wrong place so so the experience i had was totally unlike what you would ever have any other way and um it completely and utterly changed me i mean it made me very very concerned that that news is far too local which is always the sort of pious reaction you get i think when people have been away and they've seen all the stories we don't cover they always come back very upset about it 
And above all, it made me think that the, the most important voices were the smallest voices rather than, you know, the presidents and prime ministers, that they were, you know, in Africa, you'd often interview somebody and sometimes they hadn't even seen a microphone before, let alone spoken into a tape recorder and been broadcast. And I thought, oh, that's what a scoop is. Now I understand. A scoop is not the deputy prime minister getting his numbers in a twist. A scoop is speaking to this person in the middle of Mozambique who's, who's never been interviewed before. I want to hear everything they say. So it completely changed me. And then, of course, you come back and you do stories about the UK and, you know, who's parked outside my house and all that. And there's that two models of journalism. There's our lives and other lives. And I never quite work out which one we should be doing. Who's your best friend? Obviously, we don't include spouses in the answer there. I'm going to mention a friend called Dej Mahoney, who I was at school with. And I've just done a, a little podcast with him, actually, about friendship. And... I don't think I really realised how close we were until we were all asked to speak about, uh, asked separately to speak about our friendships and we realised how much our lives were interwoven. So I'll say Dej. Okay, well, how long have you been friends? We met when we were 15. Um, Dej was his family from the Gambia and he um, was head of school and he was like the sportsman. He was the, the boy everyone loved and wanted to know and I was like the complete he was the jock and I was the nerd although unfortunately he was also smart as well so he outperformed me at every single level but he was nice enough to be my friend we then lost touch for about 10-15 years until we we were standing next to each other on the escalator on a London underground station I turned back and I thought, I know, I'm sure that's Dej. And, I, and then he just said, I've got it, like that. And now we've been back in touch ever since for the last 20 years or so. And um, he's godfather to my youngest daughter. Um, I mean, it's always difficult to say why, why you're friends with someone. I think you, you, you often, friendships are very rewarding when the person is, you know, has a, maybe their life is very different or something. And, you know, they're just interesting. And he's very humble and, and interested in, me and and I'm interested in him and it's just he's just a lovely guy that's all I can't really analyze it very well actually I'm afraid no no it's totally fine sometimes you don't have to you just know don't you you just know um what's your ambition Jeremy I mean I would love to still be on radio 2 when I'm 81 actually 82 because that's when Jimmy was here but but looking away from worldly things I think I probably just I mean this is corny but I really would like to have been a good dad and I I sometimes you know I see stuff where parenting goes wrong and I always say to my wife oh god is that me am I the one who's always preoccupied at weekends you know? <laughs> or, or so, you know I go on holiday and I'm writing a book and they just say dad spent the, every holiday writing a book in the corner of the room and we were all playing and swimming um and I realized I mean, I hope I'm not that person, but I would just like to have been a good father to my two daughters because I think I did an interview the other day with um, Sinead Burke, who's a um, an Irish campaigner, and she's she calls herself a little person. She's three foot five, and you know, um, and she's she's got an incredible level of campaigning confidence about her. And I said to her, "What has given you that?" And she just said, "My mum and dad." And I think if you can give love early on. Um, gosh, that's the foundation that a child needs. So there's that. Other ambitions, I would love to write a great novel. You know, I mean, I, you've met, kindly mentioned one that I've written. I just think that would be such an exciting thing, a, a one that everybody reads. Um, I mean, I'd obviously like to record Honky Tonk Women, but the Stones have already done that, so... I used to want to be a rock star and I had to accept I couldn't sing. And I was in a band with my brother and my brother could write the songs and sing and everything. And all I could do was play the drums. And it was a real, 
a real reality check for me. You know, you can't always do what you want to do because sometimes you just can't do it. You had a, a bunch of smash hits though, right? Yeah, well, we, we had a silly band. I mean, what happened was we got so frustrated with trying to be the jam. We then thought we're just going to actually develop, have a band... They're called the Flair Generation and they were like Cheem's punk band, but we were wearing Flair trousers. And the really interesting thing about the, you know, news and the way news works is that all the time we were trying to be a serious band doing what we thought were quite good songs, no one was even slightly interested. Then we tur- we twist it and we turn it into something unusual, which is there's a punk band in Cheem and they wear Flair trousers because they don't understand what fashion is. And everyone piled in. We got interviewed by Danny Baker. We were in Smash Hits. We were in the Sun newspaper. And we did all songs about, you know, Flair trousers and university sweatshirts and sensible shoes. I think we actually had a song called Sensible Shoes. So the whole band was ridiculous and then it got coverage and I suppose that is a great lesson for me age 17, 18 the budding journalist is it was classic Man Bites Dog it was the opposite of what we were trying to do that got us to where we wanted to be It's fascinating isn't it how it sometimes works out um, What do you think your worst quality is? I can tell you without any any hesitation that my worst quality is to get to regret things too much and to dwell too much. So to, you know, I can remember every single mistake I've made on the air. And, and some people can't can't remember any of them. And um, I'm so jealous of what's a good personality type? Jeffrey Archer, you know, who comes out of jail and he's, he writes a book. Chris Hume comes out of jail. He's on Tuesday, the following news night, the following Tuesday, talking about the environment. People who are just bomb proof. They, but then they don't have radar. So they never look back and they never look, you know, they don't, they're not conscious. They bump into people and they don't apologise. I'm the opposite. I'm constantly going, oh, I'm terribly sorry. It's what, yeah. and, and I think so there's a hypersensitivity. I would, would like to take the edge off. I really would. But maybe there's, some, maybe there's something to be said for it. I don't, keeping a list. I remember <laughs> I wrote a, a, a kind of a memoir of the BBC after I'd been there 20 years called... Um, what is it called? Hang on. I must remember the title of my own book. It's all news to me. And um, I, I just wrote out 20 years of experiences, conversations, acts, everything, you know. And this, this guy said, I didn't, you know, where did you keep all this stuff? And I said, oh, well, I just remembered it all. He said, I can't even remember what I was doing last week. I said, you're joking. I suddenly realised, this is unusual to have a filing cabinet like that. And it's not that good a thing. You know, it just isn't that helpful. So that's my worst quality. I find that absolutely fascinating again because it's almost like such a juxtaposition as to your role on your Radio 2 show sometimes, for example, when you have lots of callers on air. To, 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 to be a sensitive soul, um, it's, I'm not saying that you don't come across as sensitive because you understand lots of different sort of people's opinions, of course, but do you sometimes like finish a show exhausted just from like thinking and you're know, having a bit of a heavy shoulder after it then? I just feel privileged to be able to listen to people. But I do think uh, my mum is very much like this. So my mum will remember every single slight. Not She doesn't bear grudges and I hope I don't either, but she does. I see it. I see that. But she's also a fantastic um, listener. I mean, she she's the, the person in her church that everybody comes to to tell their problems. And um, I think I probably, my parents, the thing that they gave me when, when I, which I didn't realize at the time was that they're very classless. My mum inherited some money and that got us educated and everything. But in the end, their whole thing they were driven to was that every single person is the same, wherever they're from. They, they were absolutely uninterested in, in status. They had a crap car and we went on crap holidays. But they, they, they had values and they, their value was basically that we're, we're all equal. And I think that's a great 
attitude for a radio show, actually, as well. So that the cabinet minister is worth no more than the person who comes on the line afterwards. I'm pretty sure Jimmy Young thought this as well, actually. Because, because actually, right at the beginning in the 70s, when my show, you know, was first created, accidentally created, it was the idea that someone had got through accidentally to the office and they were put on the air. And, oh, my goodness, the listener's actually real and they've got an opinion and they're more important than the cabinet minister. So... Yeah, I think I, I, I think empathy is the key quality for a broadcaster. I think you could do it without that. Empathy, enthusiasm, expertise. Mm, I agree. And I, well, I think it's an essential thing for us all to have, especially in years like this, is empathy and, and to be able to listen and uh, to be able to learn from each other, I think, because I think that's been missing for a while. Well, and the trouble with digital is that it naturally reduces everything to 280 characters and therefore you end up really binary and people... I see people getting... <laughs> it's a funny thing the other day where my friend Ian Dale was in a big row on Twitter and then somebody reminded him he'd just written a book called Why Can't We All Be Nice to Each Other? And the, <laughs> the, the, the digital world doesn't help with that. And I think the joy of radio, the beauty of radio, which has survived the internet avalanche, is that um, it's still, it's me stroking the cat in the garden with my nappy on. You know, it's still texture. It really is. I hope they use that for your next promo. Yeah, let's just use that one line to promo this because that would be really, that would be me at 90. (laughs) If you could go back and give any advice to your younger self, what would that be? Would that be to, to worry less or to care less or, or, or is there something else perhaps? Um, do you know, if I saw, I'll, get, I'll be very emotional answering this because I, I sort of imagine my 18-year-old self and how incredibly focused that person was on becoming the person he heard on the radio, you know, and just the the focus was unbelievable. I mean, I, I you know I, from twelve, right? Because I went into Capital Radio and I saw Kenny Everett and I and I did a little ten minute thing for them, and I thought that's what I want to do. And I never changed. And I wish I could give myself a big hug and say thank you, Jeremy, because you did all the work. I'm not doing it now. It was all done by that 18, 20, 25 year old and. It was really was hard miles, you know, um, and there was a you know a marriage in the middle of it that I was barely there. I was barely in the house. Um, but I would also say to the eighteen-year-old Jeremy, "Can you please see your mum a bit more and your dad?" Um, and just on the odd weekend, not always be like plotting and planning and buying 10 Sunday newspapers and reading them through and trying to get a scoop for Monday morning. Can you just please switch off a bit because we are in a long haul here? So I think he was a bit too frantic. Do you have any recurring dreams? I had the most bizarre dream the other day. I dreamt I was wearing an overcoat and uh, I was walking around living my life and the overcoat was getting smaller and smaller until I had to try and get it off and I couldn't really get it off. And then when I finally got it off, I looked inside and it said it had a name tag and the name tag was Hugh Edwards. (laughs) What does that mean? I know. Um, I don't know what that means. (laughs) I haven't told Hugh that either. Um... When were you at your happiest, do you think? Because you, you you sound like you were scurrying away, away early doors. You knew what you wanted to be. You, you were in your own skin. You knew who you were. But when were you at your happiest? Oh, when was I at my happiest? I think, no, I don't, I don't think I'd give you any career-related answer because I think you've got to be happy, you've got to be at peace. And if you're driven, you can't really... You know, my happiest friends when I was young didn't really end up being very driven professionally because why would they need to be? 
So I think you're you're driven by something dislocated. So and I've got to accept I'm driven. So you know, there's no point pretending I'm not. I don't I don't really accept I'm successful by the way at all. So I'm not saying it from that perspective. Um, I think probably I was happiest when I was 17. I don't know why. I just remember thinking this was the best year ever. <laughs> just just the youth. As Oscar Wilde says, youth is the lord of life. Youth has a kingdom waiting for it, but most people, like most kings, die in exile. And uh, if you can, that moment when you know you're at the school and, they, and the teacher says, "You're, you're, you, these are the best days of your life," and you think, "No, they're not," because I'm having to listen to you. There was a mo- if there's a moment when you're young and you tell yourself that, it's an incredibly powerful thing. You suddenly realise, yes. This is the best time. Mm. I remember my mum clearly saying to me, youth is wasted on the young and thinking... Yeah, old people, you know, listen, can you imagine old people being allowed to be young and what, you know, would the, the sort of dancing you'd get for a start, you know? I don't... Of course she's wrong. And I love I love the fact she said that. I think it's... it's yeah, I mean, I just remember at college, going, I went to... I didn't really have friends at school except for my friend Dej, who I mentioned. And uh, then I went to university and the whole... And I'd been kind of a bit machine based so you know suburban sorry a little bit gray and then i went to university and the whole thing sort of opened up for me the idea of friends the idea that you could study i was doing english literature so i was studying books you could read for pleasure i'd always been work before that and then i was also in the shadow of durham cathedral you know as a durham university student so the campus is it's not a campus it's all dotted around the cathedral and it was um it was an incredible experience for me so i think you know that period of being at college and just working on the student newspaper of course and this and that that was great were you quite um, a, a, a shy, nervous child then? No, I was a bit of a, a twat, really, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, I was somebody who was always trying to attract attention. I was, um, they, they had, the, the, the kids at school who got scholarships were put a year ahead, which I think is cruel. So there's five of us who were put in to a class of kids a year older than us which had already been together for a year now that's kind of torture when you think about it that was never going to go well so my way of compensating was to be the joker so whether or not i'm, I'm shy at, at heart I mean, my dad i think is, is quite a shy person and not very expressive but my um expressive to his family but not not outwardly but i yeah i think i'm the opposite i'm the show-off <laughs> I think you need to have down. a level of confidence to do do what you do and just to sit there and really kind of get the best out of your show, what you're doing though. I do think you have to have a level of confidence for that because otherwise it wouldn't work. I think radio, if if it's if you're in the, the right space, radio is just a conversation with one person. So I think, you know, the famous thing that Terry Wogan said when they said, how many listeners have you got now? And he said, I've only ever had one. Um, and that's the joy of radio. I think there have been moments where I've done TV shows and, you know, news night on the night of 9-11 or whatever, and you suddenly, the, you hear the theme music and you think, okay, I am now trapped here. Strictly's an example where... This lovely guy, the floor manager, says, all right, Jeremy, five seconds. And you think, okay, five seconds. I'm live to 10 million people. The music's going to be deafening. The lights are going to be blinding. And I can't remember if it's my right foot or my left foot. And there's nothing I can do. I'm I'm totally trapped. Um, that That was more scary, yeah. Did you enjoy it? I did. I loved it, actually. And I think it's, um, if you're on Strictly and it's, the key thing is you you don't really want to go out first. So you realise there is some jeopardy there. 
But assuming you don't, in our year, a lovely guy called Ewan Thomas went out first and actually he, he, he's, he and I are friends and I think he probably laughs about it now. But I, it, you can see the pain in that moment. But apart from that, most of it is is joy and you discover that these dancers, they're like the SAS. I mean, the physical power of them as a unit when I remember the last, the very last episode of Strictly, the Christmas one, we all have to turn up and do it. And they had to dance down the corridor towards us, the pros. And it was like the army had arrived, you know. And I just thought, gosh, I've been educated here. I now understand that dancing is a way of life. It's, it's like a physical form of poetry. And these people are fitter than any people I've ever seen. So there's that. And you, yeah, and you kind of fall in love with the whole thing, I think, you know. It's, it gives adults permission to to inhabit their own dreams, I think. It's like waking up in one of your own dreams. It's really a bizarre experience. And then the, but the cruelty of it is that you start, and this I think is like, like analogous to life itself. I often have thought this, um, is that you just think, God, this is like week in, week out, I can fit this into my routine, this could go on forever. You never have the thought that one day the lights go out here. And every week someone disappears and no one says, where did he go? You know, that's it. They're gone. The second they're gone, they're gone. And in Strictly, because of the passes and everything, once you're gone, you can't even get back into the building. So if you want to get... You're out. Oh, yeah. So so the week after I'd been, been knocked out, I'd said to two friends, you can come and see me. And then I found I couldn't get passes for them. So I'd become a non-person, you know. <laughs> um, I did in the end get them in. But... Um, that's like life. It's like we're cruising along here. We never have the thought that one day we're going to be knocked out, you know. Um, and I don't know if having that thought is a, is just, it's a, a, that the human psyche is allergic to that thought. We never, ever think there's a moment when it goes. And with Strictly, it's so funny. You're in full colour and you suddenly go back to grey. So I'm cycling in to Radio 2. It's raining. It's grey. I'm out of Strictly. And then I get cut up by, uh, you know, a black cab driver. And he shouts, uh, Oi, uh, you better learn to control that bicycle better. And I said, well, I think actually it was my right of way. And we sort of end happily and I cycle off. And then he just shouts out, and you're dancing shit as well. Like that. So I thought, there we are, the final indignity. Captured on the helmet cam, the famous helmet cam, which you can check out on Jerry's Twitter as well. If there's a piece of art or music that, you know, stops you in your tracks you know completely change your life or means the most to you well okay this is not me in any way plugging my book but i'm going to have to mention the painting that that drove me into writing this novel um and and i was doing eggheads in glasgow eggheads is a real slog 65 66 editions in a fortnight if you can believe that and we ended up with one day off in the middle and we had this question which artist invented the lobster telephone and i think i I must have guessed it and got it wrong, but I got a little lecture from the eggheads about Salvador Dali, the Spanish artist. And I said, actually, funny enough, I seem to remember at school there was a poster up on the wall of the melting clocks. And they said, yeah, but there's a painting that's really famous down the road in Glasgow in the Kelvin Grove Museum called Christ of St. John of the Cross. And I went and it really took my breath away, this painting. And and I, uh, so what, I mean, basically to describe it, you, you, it's as if you're coming down from space and the very first thing you see is the, the top of Christ's head on the cross. So it's a very, very odd perspective. And it's called Christ of St. John of the Cross because St. John of the Cross was a monk from the 1500s who did a little sketch in pencil, no bigger than a post-it note, and was beaten up and thrown in jail because it was regarded as a blasphemy to see Christ from God's position. Anyway, 
I look, I got really into the story of this painting. And it was posed by a stuntman called Russell Saunders, who Dali hung from the gantry in the ceiling of his studio to see the effect of gravity on his body. So then there's a whole Russell Saunders story and everything. So I think I would say that. And recently I just went back to see it. And if you've written a whole book about a painting, it's an amazing moment when you walk back into the room. They let me in 20 minutes early to have a look at it. Oh, wow. And I came with my kids and my wife. And I just thought, oh, my goodness, it's as good as I remember. It's so powerful. My book's a love story, but the painting, the painting of the painting is central. So, so it's back in Spain in 1951. And, you know, that's an amazing picture, that, in the Kelvin Grove. If anyone's anywhere near Glasgow, you must go and see it because the guy who bought it, Tom Honeyman, was the head of the Kelvin Grove Museum, and he was a fan of Dali's. And he, he said to Dali, I've, I've, I've got to buy your newest painting, whatever it is. And Dali said, well, I've just done this, £12,000. And Tom Honeyman said, there's no way we can afford that. So he knocked him down to 8200 Wow. The Spanish government recently tried to buy it for £80 million, but it's, it's worth way, it's worth double that, maybe more. And, and poor old Tom Honeyman, when he got back to Glasgow, got nothing but complaints. Why have you spent this money on, on Spanish art, you know? So there we go. So it's an amazing, that's, that's my answer. That's an amazing story. And next time in Glasgow, I'll definitely go and see it. Um, a couple of questions left, if that's all right with you. Um, the penultimate one being, when did you most feel like you? Was there a moment where you suddenly thought, you know, or was there ever a moment where you didn't feel like you? You know, did you always know who you were? Did you know Jeremy Vine, you know, know yourself early on? Or, or was there a, a clicking point? Um, I don't think I, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't say I've never felt like me, but I'm always, I'm still finding out who I am, I think. I think I'm probably much too inclined to see my reflection in the eyes of other people. So I, 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 this thing where, I think if I'm on a desert island and there's no one around, I will physically disappear myself. But unless I can see my image in the iris of another person, I'm, I'm not there. And I think that probably goes back to this thing, the broadcaster needing approbation or needing reception. You know, reception, of course, classic, you know, radio-related word. So I can't really give you a good answer on that. I mean, certainly there have been moments where I've not felt myself and I've I've felt, you know, down and et cetera. And I've tried to remember that, you know, I've got a family and I'm loved and this and that. Um, so those things, that those are the things I go to. Um, I would never say, remember, you're Jeremy Vine, you've got a radio show. I would never say that. I'd say, you're Jeremy Vine, you're Guy's son and Diana's son and Rachel's husband and Martha and Anna's father. Mm, that's lovely. Um, and the final question, actually, and um, I'm sure you might give a similar answer, actually, now, because you seem very humble um, character to me on first meeting on you face-to-face, but I was going to ask what your greatest achievement is. Um, OK, greatest achievement... When I, I went to, to have um, my wisdom tooth out and I ended up speaking to the, the doctor about it in this, in this hospital in Surrey and he said, OK, you're 48, you're entering Sniper's Alley. Between 48 and 52, people get taken out by stray bullets. If you get past 52, you're good for the next 25 years. So here I am at 55. <laughs> so I got through Sniper's Alley, yeah. Never heard that before. <laughs> but I think, but as to, you know, I think the two key professions are to create and to care. Um, nurses care and uh, artists create. If you look at art, you know, the hardest 
profession, if you look at the spectrum, the hardest is probably to be employed as a poet, I think. I don't think there's anything harder than earning a living as a poet. Comedy, which my brother does, is pretty difficult. And at the other, the easy end, you've got what I do, which is which is journalism, which I think is creative, but it's the, the easiest way to earn a living because there are more jobs. So even to be employed very slightly in, in creative for more than 30 years is is. I should probably at some point think about that and think that that's good. But then I'll just think, oh, my God, maybe I'll lose my job tomorrow. Because in the end, that's that's all any one of us ever thinks. <laughs> Fascinating. Um, well, I know that radio, I've, I've felt very privileged to be um, on air over the past six months, particularly in being able to use technology, especially to carry on doing bits and bobs from home. So um, I think it has been a tonic for a lot of people to have this daily conversation. So For sure. I, I know. I'm so, I, I totally agree. And I think that it's radio is doing something still like it did in the 30s and, and it's somehow survived and it must be just pure quality. I love that it's called the wireless because wireless now means something else and that's that's joyful too. Yeah, and so nice that, you know, thank you to the Radio Academy and the festival for having us do this today. Um, and like you said at the start, I think, of the podcast, that we survived the avalanche of the internet and everything like that, and it's still going strong. So um, there's definitely still a place for, for voices every day. So thank you so much. Thank you, Danielle. Real pleasure. Really nice to meet you virtually in the COVID era. Absolutely. Um, we'll catch up over a proper brew one time. Great stuff. Thank you so much. Take care. Ah, oh, Jeremy Vine, what a national treasure. And amazing to listen back to that clarity of direction in radio from such an early age. So thank you so much to Jeremy for his time, his generosity of stories and boundless enthusiasm for getting involved. And of course, thank you to the Radio Academy for the invitation to showcase my new podcast, Elevenses, with Danielle Perry. If you'd like to listen back to Series 1, you can. Right now, it's in all the usual podcast places. Each guest has been asked the same 11 questions that Jeremy was just then. And the questions and the answers have been so fascinating across the board. Hear them for yourselves from the likes of Jeff Goldblum, Carl Pilkington, Sophie Dahl, Skin from Skunk and Nancy, David Arnold, Steve Coogan and Angelica Bell. And as ever, if you're listening on Apple and you enjoyed, please do rate and subscribe. Series 2 will be on its way soon. Thanks, as ever. <laughs>